Our second reading this morning comes to us from the book of Hebrews. Friends, listen now for what God is saying to the church. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he made purifications for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. But someone has testified somewhere, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, or mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and with honor subjecting all things under their feet. Now in the subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and with honor because of the suffering of death so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, take these words out from my mouth and make them into your own for us today. Amen. I can't believe that I chose this text to preach on. And if I'm being totally honest, I've never preached on a non-narrative text before. There's not really any story in what we read this morning, right? There's no tale of a miracle happening or of God imparting some great wisdom onto humanity through a parable or through the message that a prophet might proclaim to his people. There's no story here. There's no imagery of fields or sheep, of mountains or deserts or cities. Instead, there's just this description of God's ultimate messenger and the message that he brings to us. The Hebrews, the people who wrote our text this morning, they were second-generation Christians. They were removed from the intensity of Jesus dying on the cross. They had only heard the stories. 
and what we have in front of us this morning is the Hebrews trying to make sense of God, the God that came to earth, that suffered on a cross, died, and was then resurrected. The Hebrews tell us that God used to speak to the people through prophets like Moses, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, Micah, and such, but not anymore. In these days, God speaks to us through Jesus, through a son, through God made human. But what does God say to God's people? God says hope, but what are we hoping for? The past few weeks, the news alerts had been going a little crazy on my phone. You know when it sends you those like news messages and you think that somebody needs you, but it's just the news? That's been happening a lot. And I suspect that you all can guess what they've been about. These news alerts, to me, revealed a world where people treated one another as its instead of human beings. They showed a world that was filled with greed and a world that assumed guilt. They showed a world that was filled with darkness and sin and doubt as names were called and jokes were made. And I wondered, what are we as Christians, as God followers, disciples of a loving God, supposed to do when the world seems like mutually assured destruction is imminent? Then it came time to pick which text to preach on this week. I read, I looked at my Bible as a vision of God, like the Reverend Dr. Jill Duffield talked about last week at our anniversary keynote. And if the Bible is a vision of God in the world, what are the Hebrews saying to a world divided like we live in now? What is the vision of God being proclaimed by these words? I suspect the author of the Hebrews is proclaiming to us a message of hope for all of God's creation in times divided. In the Psalms that Fleming read to us this morning, Psalm 8, the psalmist is marveling at God's creation, the way God made the sun and the moon and the sky. But the psalmist doesn't just marvel at the past. The psalmist also marvels at what God continues to do and what God will make in the future. God's words to us are not passive, they are active. It's an active and a living word from God. It's through a living word that we hear this message of hope that Jesus proclaims to us. In all of the stories that Jesus tells, in all of his teachings and the parables and his actions, Jesus proclaims a message of hope to us humans. Jesus isn't afraid to sit with humans, to sit with sinful outcasts, and to touch lepers. Jesus embraces them, and he calls them brothers and sisters and friends. This Sunday, World Communion Sunday, that we talked about with the kids, is a special Sunday, and it's a special message of hope. World Communion Sunday, as we know it, 
began in 1933 at Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where Ann Camp in the back used to serve before she moved here. It was a vision of Dr. Hugh Thompson Carr that first came up to him when he was serving as the moderator of the Presbyterian Church. And part of the moderator's job is to visit churches across the denomination and while visiting, he wondered, can we all do this together? So World Communion Sunday was an attempt to bring churches together in Christian unity in which everyone might receive information and inspiration, and above all, to know how important the Church of Jesus Christ is and how each congregation is interconnected with one another. It spread from Shadyside Presbyterian Church really slowly until the Second World War when the spirit caught hold as the world was trying to hold itself together with tape and glue. In 1940, the Department of Evangelism of the Federal Council of Churches, the predecessor body of the National Council of Churches, thank goodness they decided to shorten their name, extended the celebrations of World Communion Sunday worldwide. Today, on this day, we demonstrate the church founded on Jesus Christ peacefully, sharing God-given goods like bread and wine with the world. On this day, we celebrate communion together. In this meal that we will share together, we'll taste the hope that Jesus proclaimed on the night before he was arrested, he sat in a room with his closest friends. This should be sounding familiar. His friends were sinners, they were liars, and they were human beings. Jesus didn't ostracize them or point out their shortcomings, though. Instead, he fed them. He broke bread with them, and he shared wine with them. And then Jesus died on a cross for their sins, for all of our sins. And it's in Jesus that we find hope for things that are bigger than we are, like the forgiveness of everyone's sins, things like world peace. When I was in college, um, the schools that I went to had these tunnels that connected their campuses. Um, so that you could walk across these major streets without running the risk of being hit by cars, because we all know that college drivers are the worst, or at least I think they are. At App State, the tunnel went under River Street, and you almost always had to go through this tunnel to get to class or to get back to your dorm. Now, each time you went through it, there was something different painted inside. Students could paint or graffiti the tunnel whatever way they wanted to. Usually they would promote events or organizations on campus. A few weeks ago, early one Sunday morning of all days, it wasn't a campus event that was being promoted. Someone had painted a Nazi flag in the tunnel and captioned their painting, the Holocaust was a good thing. I keep hoping that this kind of language is dead and that we're past degrading one another in that way, but we aren't. 
This caused an outcry on the campus of Appalachian State University. The students of Hillel, the Jewish student groups, they were swarmed with messages that said things like, we love you and you belong here. Other student groups from campuses across the state, like the Presbyterian Campus Ministry of Raleigh, reached out with kindness and with love. My own campus ministry, I was proud to learn that they still proclaimed a message of love and kindness, and I was blown away at the hope that these students received. See, instead of struggling or shrugging off, shrugging off, these hateful events that happened across the state, they didn't do that. They stood alongside one another and treated each other as beloved children of God. I saw hope in the world when I learned of their caring for each other, that real sort of empathetic, I'm here with you, caring for people. There's this really great video that Brene Brown narrates about sympathy and empathy, and it starts off with a hole and this animal that's in the bottom of the hole. And as she's explaining empathy, a bear, I think, like crawls down into the hole with another animal and says, hey, I know what this like. I'm here with you. And then this little deer shouts out from the top of the hole, a nice little, thinking about you down there, good luck. See you soon. I don't really think the deer responded the best that they could have. And it's this kind of empathetic response that says, I'm here with you. You matter to me, and you are important to me. That shows God's love for one another. That shows Christ's work in the world and us treating one another as beloved children of God. A couple of years ago, more than a couple actually, the summer after my senior year of high school, I went on this mission trip to Jamaica. I'd never been on a trip like this before and I really had no idea what to expect. Part of the time we were down there, we were repairing this shack that was made out of plywood and then the other part of our time was spent in um, some sort of like orphanage slash mental health institution. And I'm not really sure how this all came about, if it was planned or not, but somehow in that hospital slash orphanage, we found ourselves worshiping together. I sat next to this older woman with cloudy eyes from cataracts, I think, that smelled really, really funny as my own youth pastor told the story of breaking bread and the sharing of the cup on the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed over Cheez-Its and orange juice of all things. These elements were being passed throughout the room and when they got to my friend, the woman sitting next to me, she turned to me holding this basket of Cheez-Its and this cup of orange juice for me. She made noises that I think were her saying the bread of life and the cup of salvation, but I couldn't understand her. But I took communion from her and then did the same thing to the person on the other side of me. Despite my discomfort and my anxieties about sitting next to somebody that didn't look like me, that I couldn't understand, 
whose life was a totally different story than my own, I felt this overwhelming sense of hope. I felt this sense of hope that if two people, two beloved children of God, can share a meal like this together, imagine what else we could do for the kingdom of God. To high school Annie, in a world that was totally unlike anything that I knew, taking communion alongside people who didn't look like me, people who had been shut in this home by a society who didn't want them, it seemed pretty radical. And if this kind of unconditional love can happen here, where else can it happen? It's in Jesus that we find God's unprecedented and unconditional love. It's in Jesus that we find hope for a world where the things that divide us turn to unify us. When we come to the table here in a few minutes, we become united in Christ with believers all over the world. We are united with God, the real thing, the authentic pioneer of God, drenched in the living, reflecting the glory of God in the flesh and blood experiences of earthly life. God became human in Jesus, and God came on earth, walked alongside us, meeting us where we are. God's Son, Jesus, has the imprint of God's very being, and Christ crucified on the cross was a tough and tender act of the grace of God, who loves us unconditionally. This passage doesn't tell us what to do to get right with God. It doesn't tell us what to do in order to receive salvation or offer us a nice quote to hang on our dining room walls. Laura Chaffetz writes about the Hebrews saying, Hebrew shows us the hope that we live in, not the light and optimistic surface kind, but the depth of hope that can flourish in the midst of suffering. This is not a text that tells us what to do to be saved. It's a text praising God and lifting up Christ. We hear what God wants for humanity, God's glory, a role model of salvation who suffered as humans suffer. The suffering is an example of the world gone wrong, but it's something that God wants set right, and God is enough to do that. So maybe there is a story. Maybe there is a story of hope in Hebrews. The story of the hope that the Hebrews have in God's unconditional love for humanity. The words of the Hebrews overwhelm us by the power and the presence of God. And it reminds us that only the one who created the world can redeem it. Only God in Christ brings redemption into our world, and only God can bring us together in unity that lasts forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.